The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28. So, hey, if you guys don't know me, uh, I am Sam. I'm one of the, one of the pastors here at Heritage. Um, I promise you, <clears throat> for you common Wednesday nighters, that I am not going to be the only one teaching every Wednesday night. <laughs> uh, it's been a crazy season for Jeff. I mean, he's got a lot of stuff going on. He's uh, primarily re- leading the retreat for the dads um, this week, so he wanted to take, take one last opportunity to get away with his, with his wife and take, a little, take her on a little date tonight, which I thought was sweet. Everybody say, aw. Um, so I am here teaching tonight, which is exciting um, for me. I don't know about exciting for you guys. Uh, <laughs> we'll see <clears throat> if it is. Let's pray and uh, we'll, we'll dig into God's word tonight. Father, uh, I'm so thankful, Lord, for your grace. I'm, I'm so thankful, Lord, for your word. I'm thankful that you're a God that does not distance himself from us. And you're a God that's involved intricately in every part of our life. <clears throat> you're a God that communicates to us, Father, through your word, through your son, Jesus, through the, the ultimate language, Jesus Christ himself. I'm thankful that we can, uh, we can dig into the scriptures and find life, find nourishment, uh, find bread, find manna, find everything that we need, Lord, uh, for, for life and godliness in your word. I'm thankful for your Holy Spirit tonight that illuminates the word to us. And, and God, I'm thankful for this church, I'm thankful for this group, God, that is faithful to come out uh, on a Wednesday night and to give of their time, to give of their mind, uh, to, to give... Lord, um, of, of, of themselves just to be with you, to be with each other, to uplift each other, God. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us tonight, that you would teach us tonight from your word, um, <clears throat> that I would not get in the way in any way. Uh, in Jesus' name, pray. Amen. Cool. Have you guys ever tried to summarize the entirety of life in one sentence? Have you guys ever done that? Me neither. <laughs> But I was thinking about it today. I think it would actually be kind of a fun exercise. Um, all of life, all of the things that we've seen in all of our existence, if you were to summarize that into one phrase or one sentence, what would that phrase or that sentence be? Um, I found some really funny, uh, f- some funny versions of this, some, some people actually summarizing what life actually is into one sentence. Uh, they're by some famous people you may know. The first one is this. I hope life isn't a big joke because I don't get it. <laughs> I thought that was a good one. Uh, it's guy, by a guy named Jack Handy. I don't know him, but pretty funny. Uh, here's another one. I think I've discovered the secret of life. You just hang around until you get used to it. That's by Charles Schultz. I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, this is a good one. <clears throat> we are born wet, naked, and hungry. Then things get worse. <laughs> uh, there was one funny one I didn't get on my little sheet here, but uh, it was, let's see if I can remember, it was, uh, life is a concrete trampoline. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. Pretty funny. Um, and then lastly, this one might surprise you by, of, of who it's by, and a little more on a serious note, it says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. That's by Jim Carrey, <laughs> which I thought was actually kind of interesting. Someone who has all the money and everything he would want in life, um, kind of gets it. There's, there's really nothing there. But I just thought that was an interesting thought. What if we could summarize all of, all of our life, all of our existence, all of what our life is about into one thought, into one sentence, into one phrase? What would that look like? The text we're going to look at tonight is really exciting to me. A lot of commentators skip over this text. Um, a lot of people pass over this. I don't know why. To me, it's, it's extremely illuminating into uh, the will of God for his people. Um, and, and what, we look at, what we're going to look at tonight is literally Jesus condensing all of the scriptures, all of the law into one phrase or one command. Isn't that exciting? That's what we're going to look at tonight. So I love simplicity. I love it when, when God, through his word, takes big things and makes them into a tangible, uh, sort of almost edible little package that we can just take in. And I think that's exactly what, uh, what he does through the verses we're going to look at tonight. So Mark chapter 12, a little bit of background before we dig in. Um, first of all, we've been looking at this series of three different verbal um, encounters that Jesus has with the Sanhedrin. If you guys remember, this is a review, but the Sanhedrin is the, was the uh, sort of the, the board or the, the head group, head honchos of religion in, Ju- uh, in Judaism. Um, it was made up of 70 members, this council, this board. And within that m- group of members was Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, um, different religious heads. And in this point in Mark, in chapter 12, we're looking at Jesus taking on, head on, 
and these verbal discussions with each group of the Sanhedrin. So we've seen him come into contact with the Pharisees first. Remember, he had that discussion about taxation to Rome and, and, and render to Caesar what is Caesar's. The Pharisees have tried to entrap him verbally. And this is most likely on the same day. And then last week we talked about the Sadducees. You guys remember them? Um, the Sadducees, the cynics of their day, sort of the, 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 um, the ones that didn't believe in the resurrection, didn't believe in a lot of the, the truths of Scripture. Jesus encounters them in a verbal debate. And then thirdly, today we're going to look at the scribes. Okay, so the Pharisees have come, the Sadducees have come, and now the scribes, this third member of the Sanhedrin, has come to try to take a shot at Jesus. Now, more specifically in our story, it's actually not a group of scribes. It's going to be one scribe, so one single scribe. Now, I want to talk about scribes a little bit, okay? But it helps us to better understand the text if we understand who this person is encountering uh, Jesus in our story. So now, a scribe was basically, uh, their, their job was to, um, to be masters of the law, Okay? Now, let me explain a little bit what I mean by law. Now, law is the Torah. Okay? The Torah is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That would be considered the law. And the scribe's job was to be um, experts in the law and all of the different laws within there. Now, uh, you got to think about this. Now, we have something nowadays called a printing press, right? Well, we don't call it a printing press. We call it a printer. <laughs> we have a printer. I, we have a giant printer in our office. When I want something printed, I want an article. I want to print my notes for this teaching. I just hit print. comes right out. They didn't have that back then. You guys understand that, right? This was a long time ago. This was 2,000 years ago, okay? So thousands of years up to the time of Jesus and even over a millennia after, there was no such thing as a printing press, so if they wanted to reproduce the scriptures, if they wanted to reproduce the law, they had to do that by handwriting it out. That's arduous, okay? Can you imagine that? Any, if, we wanted, if I wanted to give out a Bible to you guys, I couldn't just say, hey, here's a Bible. We printed it for you. It was 99 cents. There you go. Take it. No, literally would have to write out word for word by hand onto scrolls the scriptures, now, this meant that not everybody had their own Bible. You didn't have your own Bible in your house. Some people in America have 20 Bibles in their house just sitting there. No one had their own Bible. You would go to the synagogue to study the scriptures. And in the synagogue, there would be these scrolls. Now, the scribe's job was to not only memorize and, and, and understand perfectly these scrolls in the, in the scriptures, but to also to write them out over and over and over again. And we have hundreds and hundreds of copies of the scriptures in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. The reason we have so many copies of that that make up our Bible is because the scribes diligently and faithfully would write out word for word the scriptures over and over again. Okay? Don't underestimate the power of the Jewish um, historical, uh, how they did this. Okay, I mean, they were extremely meticulous about this. Literally, if there was, say you wrote out the book of Deuteronomy, okay, on a scroll. If there was one capitalization error, one punctuation error, uh, one jot or tittle, if you will, that was off or wrong, that would completely discredit that scroll. This was how seriously the Jews took what the scribes did actually writing out. This is one of the reasons we can trust the scriptures as accurate as they are. The Jews were obsessed with tracking their history perfectly and well, and this was the role of the scribe. Now also think about this. In our culture, we have a differential between church and state, right? We have uh, people that would be experts in religion, and then we have people that would be experts in law. And in our culture, we try not to mix the two, okay? You don't walk into a courtroom and accuse someone of a crime and put them in prison based off of a scriptural um, wrongdoing. This is, this is the culture that we live in. There's a separation. The separation is that there is the political laws, and then there is religious laws, and the two don't mix. <clears throat> okay, now in this time, this is different. In the Jewish culture, there is no two laws. There is one law. It's God's law. So therefore, the scribes who are the experts in the law are not only religious experts, they're also judicial experts. They're also the ones that are like lawyers. They're actually the ones that, that know and would be the accusing or defending people based on the law. They understood the law better than anyone. So they're like this weird mixture of, of, of lawyer and, and, and priest, right? It's extremely interesting, Different, totally different culture. But this is what these guys would do day after day. They would write the scriptures out by hand. It would be arduous. I remember my first Bible that I got when I was really getting into the Word. Um, uh, I, I just started going out to Applegate, and I started really getting excited about, about the, the Bible, and I got in my first King James Bible. Um, 
And, and I remember, like, I didn't really have access to a lot of things like I do now. I, I, now, okay, look, get this. I mean, you guys may think I, I just know this stuff. I don't. Um, there, there's so many resources to study God's Word now. I mean, I have this program called Logos. I just click on a word. It tells me what it means in Greek. It tells me what it means in Hebrew. It tells you the commentary. It tells you all about it just with a mouse click. Okay, and I didn't have that when I, first, when I first started walking with the Lord. So when I had my little Bible and I would take in a teaching and I would get a cross-reference or something, I would write it in my Bible. Because that was the only way I was going to have it for later as a teaching resource. So when I was, when I was working out at Applegate, I was teaching three, four times a week. And, and so I would reference my Bible for these things, for cross-references. I remember I got a new Bible, and I wanted to take all of my cross-references. And there was a lot at this time. I wanted to take all of them and put them into my new Bible. So I'm like trying to write them out, and it was like horrible. I think I got to like three pages, and I was like, forget it. I'm starting over. King James is not going to, I can't do it anymore. And uh, my point being is I can understand what it would be like to sit there and arduously just write this out day to day. But these guys knew the law. They understood the law. They were experts in the law. So let's look at the text knowing that. Chapter 12, verse 28. It says this. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him which commandment is the most important of all. So during these two prior encounters that Jesus has with the Pharisees, with the Sadducees, this scribe in our story, he's there. He's present. He's taking in and listening to Jesus' responses to the Pharisees, Jesus' responses to the Sadducees. So he's there. He's listening. This probably all happened in the same day. And then it says specifically too in verse 28, it says that he noticed that he answered well. So this scribe, he's kind of impressed with Jesus' responses. He's like, I can't believe this guy is, is, he's taken on the religious heads of state, man. He's taken on the highest authorities of Scripture, and he's doing a great job. He would have been impressed by his authority, by his, his communication skills, by his knowledge of the Scriptures. This scribe is blown away by Jesus. So he wants his turn. He wants to take a shot at it. Now I want to go have this conversation with Jesus. I have a question for him, um, and now I want to look at the question. So the question he specifically asks for is which commandment is the most important of all? Okay, now this is, this is an interesting question. <clears throat> First of all, you have to understand something to understand this question. There's the, the, the rabbis, the scribes, if you will, back then, um, they separated the laws of Moses in the first five books of the Bible. They separated them out into 613 separate laws. Okay, 613 separate laws just in the first five books of the Bible. They wrote later uh, oral traditions called the Mishnah and things that added more hundreds of laws. But just in the Torah, there were 613 laws and commands. Okay, so the scribes, the religious leaders, they have to figure out a way to somehow condense this down because it's just too much, right? So a few ways that they did that was, first of all, they would split them into two categories. One category um, would be the heavy laws, or the other category would be the light laws. And what that means is that, okay, these ones are the serious ones, and these ones are um, serious, but not as big of a deal, okay? It'd be like the difference today between our laws of like, um, yeah, I mean, he kicked my dog, or, you know, you committed murder. They, they, they would kind of separate them into these two categories, and in doing so, it, it sort of narrowed it down a little bit, so it was easier to follow. Because if you guys have not experienced this, living according to the laws is hard. It's hard. And especially when you have 613 specific commandments that you have to be mindful of every day. It's impossible, so what they would do also is they would ask each other constantly, and, 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 and there's tons of historical records of, of Jewish rabbis asking each other this question of, what's the most important one? Okay? What's the summary of all of the laws? What's the one that, if you could just say, this one law actually represents the all, all of the law? They, that, that's what they wanted to do because it simplifies it and it makes it easier. Like I said in the beginning, what if we could just take all of our life and just simplify it with one, represent it with one sentence? It's kind of like what they're doing here. There's an example of this in Jewish history, a rabbi called Rabbi Hillel, and uh, he, was, he was a few years before Jesus, so he would have been close to a contemporary of him. Um, he was asked by a Gentile this question. Uh, he, he asked him to summarize the law while he stood on one leg, okay? <laughs> it's just funny. Um, <clears throat> summarize the law while he stood on one leg. His response was this. What is hateful to you, do not to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah, while the rest is the commentary thereof. Interesting, right? So this question that the scribe is asking Jesus is really not a new question. Okay? This isn't random. This isn't just something the scribe thought up out of, out of thin air and said, uh, Jesus, tell me, you know, tell me the, the summation of the law. It's really not a random question. It was a quite, quite a normal question. And this scribe wants to know what Jesus' thought is. 
Now, before we get into talking about this question a little more, I want, I want, to, I want to show you what the scribe's actually trying to do here. Because don't, don't forget, now, this scribe, though he may be interested in what Jesus has to say, he's trying to systematically destroy the ministry of Christ, okay? As is the Pharisees, as are the Sadducees. He is trying to pull out the legs from, from underneath Jesus' ministry, why? Because Jesus is destroying everything that he loves, right? He's destroying him philosophically, theologically. He's destroying um, the source of income through the temple. I mean, Jesus is stirring up things that he doesn't like. So the scribe wants to destroy that. And how is he going to do that? Well, it was believed by these religious leaders that Jesus was teaching something contrary to Moses. Okay, now just a little history lesson here. Moses was the patriarch of Judaism. You guys understand that? Moses was the top dog. Moses was the one that penned the law itself, the first five books of the Bible. So he's in the, they hold him in the highest regard. Now, if they believe that Jesus is trying to come in and say something other than what Moses is saying, the scribe is saying, well, if I draw his attention to the law specifically and I get him to talk about the law in a way other than what Moses preached— then therefore, I, I, it'll, it'll illuminate the fact that he's not teaching the same thing as Moses. Does that make sense? The scribe is trying to show everyone that Jesus is teaching something different than Moses. So now let's look at the answer. What is Jesus' answer to this question in verse 29? He actually answers it in two parts, which is funny because the scribe only asks for one. But he answers it in two parts. Verse 29, Jesus answered, The most important is... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is, uh, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Okay? Now, Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. I want you guys to go there really quick, because I want us to take a little bit of time and actually look at the importance of this chunk of Scripture. Um, you've got to understand, you guys, this is huge. What Jesus is quoting here is like the Pledge of Allegiance to Judaism. It's like the Lord's prayer to Christianity. Um, this is one of the most important scriptures in Judaism that Jesus is quoting and drawing their attention to. So we, um, as a church 2,000 years later, need to understand how important this would have been to Judaism. So Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4, it says, and it's going to sound familiar because Jesus is quoting it, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. When you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. I read that twice. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, houses full of good things that you did not fill, cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, can you sense the em emphasis and the importance that Moses is putting on this? A little bit of context about when Moses preached this. Israel's about to go into the promised land. They've been wandering in the desert for 40 years, and they're finally going to go in. And Moses doesn't get to go in, but he preaches sort of his last sermon. That's what the book of Deuteronomy, that's what the book of Deuteronomy is, is the sermon that Moses is preaching um, and apparently needs deodorant. Uh, he's preaching it to them. He probably did. It's the desert, hot. Ugh. Uh, anyways, but he emphasizes what he's saying is, guys, the most important thing is that you remember the Lord your God. He is one, that you love him with all your heart, your soul, your strength. And it's so important that I want you to put it on your heads. I want you to put it on your hands. I want you to put it on your doorposts. I want you to talk about it when you go to sleep. I want you to talk about it when you wake up. It's so important because why? Because we forget so easily, the Lord our God, don't we? We go astray so quick. And Moses knew that Israel was like sheep, that they were going to go astray. So he said, this is important. Here's the comical thing. So this little thing that Moses said, the Lord your God is one, love him with your heart, your soul. This is known today even as the great Shema. Okay? Can you guys say that? Great Shema. Okay. So the great Shema. This is a huge part of Jewish culture. They literally, just can you put this, this picture up here? They literally take this very literally. 
okay? They, they didn't quite get that Moses was saying, no, I want it to be on your mind. I want it to be on your hand. They take it literally, and so what they actually do is they wrote it on a piece of paper, and they put it in this little box. Have you guys seen, seen anything like this before on the news, in the wailing wall, things like that? They put it in this box on their head, and then they put it in a box on their arm, and they wrap it around their arm, okay? This, this is them literally still carrying out this command, this great Shema. This is a huge part. If you ever see those, uh, those, those Jewish people wearing those funny black hats, the, the Shema is underneath those hats. They wear it with them all the time. And the devout, orthodox, uh, ultra-orthodox Jews, they do this. I thought that was kind of a cool picture of this, uh, this Jewish soldier, just to illustrate that. Um, but this great Shema, it's a huge deal. It's a big part. Now, Moses was communicating two things through the great Shema, okay? Two things. The first thing is the first phrase, which is, the Lord your God is one, okay? Now, now why is that important? Why is Moses telling that to them? First of all, that's a theological truth, right? We talked about this last week. Theology is the understanding of God, okay? Um, it's a theological truth. He says, the Lord your God is one. Now, that's important because in Egypt and all the surrounding areas, the Canaanites and all these different people, they were all polytheistic. Now, what polytheistic means is they worshipped multiple gods. Now, at the heart of Judaism, the heart of Christianity is monotheism, which is one God, right? We believe there is one true God and that, and that, that there are no other deities besides him, that he is the ultimate God over all. Now, this, a, lot, a lot of religions that copied this didn't come on until later, okay? So there wasn't a lot of people that believed in this one God. So God knows that when they go into the land, when they go in and, and, and surround themselves with Canaanites and with Gentiles, that they're going to be tempted to fall into this polytheism. So God lays out specifically, the Lord your God is one. And you need to remember that because you need to know who he is so that you can worship him correctly. The second thing that God says in this great Shema is that you are to love God with all your being, specifically with your, with your heart, your soul, your strength. You're to love him with all that you are. Now, the word love there in Hebrew is the word ahava, okay? This is, this is important because it's not just love like, oh yeah, like, like God's great. I mean, he's, he's something that, that I think is part of my life and, and I go to church once in a while. That's not the kind of love that God's talking about here in the great Shema. What he's talking about is ahava love and ahava is the most intimate of loves, Ahava is the love that you would share even with a spouse. The, 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 the closest and most intimate and most full and most meaningful and most passionate love that you have. That is Ahava love. And through the great Shema, God commands that you are to love God in that way. He's to be the only God. He's to be the only one, the only source of your affection and your love. So you're to Ahava the Lord your God with all your first word is heart, right? Well, the, the Hebrew word for heart is labab. Labab, it's great. You use a little stick, you put meat on it, um, and, and peppers. Shish kebab, okay, that one fell super flat. Um, labab, you'll never forget it now at least. Uh, the, word, the Jewish word for heart is labab, and what this means is this is the inner man, okay? Everything, if you take away all physical aspects of who you are, it's the inner being. It's your thoughts, it's your passions, it's the depths of who you are. It's, it's, it's also going to be translated the well, which means that if you were to dip into the deepest parts of who you are and pull out what there was there, that would be your heart. Now, we know the word heart, obviously, our heart's just a beating organ. When we talk about our heart, we're talking about the deepest parts of who we are, right? That you give your heart to someone, you give them the deepest parts of your love. That's why in Proverbs 4.23, the same word, it says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. So keep your labab with your heart, or with all diligence, for out of it the issues um, come the issues of life. So God is saying to ahava love him with your heart, with the depth of who you are. And then he, secondly, he says with your soul. Now, this, the, the Hebrew word for soul is nefesh. Nefesh, and this is your emotions. This is, this is the, 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 your guts, if you will. Like, you know, you're, you're, and you're really stressed about something. Um, like, like, for instance, when Jesus in the garden says, and my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. is the, the emotion that we feel, okay? Uh, and then lastly, strength. And the, the Hebrew word for that is nefesh. Um, strength being just our physical being. What we do with our life, what we do with our time, what we do with our money, what we do with, with everything that we are physically. So what God's saying through this great Shema is that, is that I want you to, first of all, know that I am God, one God, the only God. 
I want you to ahava love me. I want you to love me with all that you are, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, your being, your emotions, with all of your strength. Our love um, to God, it's an intelligent love. It needs to be an emotional love. It needs to be an active love, an all-consuming love. Every part of who we are, first and foremost, belongs to God. Amen? That's the great Shema. Isn't that cool? So, that's Jesus' first part of his answer. But then he tacks on his second part. Okay? He tacks on his second part. The scribes, again, the scribes only ask for one. But it's two for one day. Jesus gives two commandments to summarize the whole of the law. Let's look at his second answer. Mark chapter 12, verse 31. So if you were in uh, Deuteronomy, flip back to Mark chapter 12. And we'll cruise on through our story. So verse 31, it says, The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So after quoting the great Shema, then he goes on to quote another Old Testament uh, law, which was found in Leviticus 19, verse 18. You don't have to turn there, but, um, and that was talking about loving your neighbor as yourself. Now listen. I want you to listen to this. This is what he's quoting. Um, there's something I want to point out in here. It says in Leviticus 19, it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Against the sons of your own people. Okay, get that. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So Jesus is quoting this. Um, but the interesting thing about this is that neighbors in this context, what it means to love your neighbor in the Jewish context, context was to love those that were of your tribe or of your people. That's what loving your neighbor meant in Judaism. That's what loving your neighbor meant in Israel. So that would be like me saying, hey guys, love your neighbor. And what that means is love people that go to heritage. Or, hey guys, love your neighbor. And what that means is love Oregonians. Okay, or uh, guys, love your neighbor. And what that means is love Americans, right? Because those are our people. We're Oregon, we're Oregonian Americans that go to heritage and that's who we're gonna love. That's, what, that's essentially what Leviticus 19.18 was saying. Now Jesus has a different idea of what neighbor is, right? There's a parallel account to this you guys may be familiar with it. It's found in, in, in the book of Luke. And what, uh, what happens that's a little bit different is that the scribe actually asks Jesus to define neighbor. So same story. Jesus says, he quotes the great Shema. He says, the Lord your God is one. And, and love him with your heart, your soul, your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And then the scribe says, wait, wait, wait. Master, who is my neighbor? You guys remember this story? Well, Jesus proceeds to tell a story about who the neighbor is. He tells a story about a man. Who, a Jewish man who was going along the road and, and, and fell under some, some bandits, some thieves, some robbers. They, they steal his stuff, they strip him, they beat him and leave him for dead on the side of the road. Okay, Talk about a bad day. So this Jewish man is left for dead on the side of the road, no hope. Someone has to help him or he's going to die. Well, along comes a priest. Okay, for, 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 for the sake of our analogy, along comes the Pope, right? This, this, this is the, the, supposed to be the, the epitome of religious piety, this guy that, that, that should, if anyone in the world should help this guy, it's this priest. Priest comes along, looks at him, doesn't want to get ceremonially unclean, so he continues on his way. And then another man comes, a Levite, okay? The tribe of Levi, again, a priest. Epi- epitome of, of religious piety, again, comes by, looks at the man, walks right on by. And then thirdly, a Samaritan comes by. Now let me explain why that's important. A Samaritan was a half-breed Jew. They were half-Gentile, half-Jew. And they were despised. I can't, I can't emphasize that enough. They were despised by Jews. They didn't worship in the same way. They didn't have the same beliefs. They believed that they worshipped in a different place than the temple. And they, they had this really brutal disagreement. They did not like each other. Okay? The Samaritan sees a Jew who would have hated him sees him on the side of the road, sees that he needs assistance, and he goes over and he helps him, okay? Uh, and he doesn't just help him. He, he bandages him, he puts him on his mule, he takes him into town, he pays for him to be healed, to have a place to rest, to get a meal. He does everything for this guy that would literally be an enemy of him. Now, Jesus has taken the Levitical law of uh, love your neighbor who is, you know, an Oregonian or, or someone that went to Heritage or an American, right? And he blows out of the water and he says, no, actually, you need to love the transvestite. Now, you need to love the homosexual. You need to love the Taliban. You need to love the ISIS, right? How do we do that? These guys are killing us. They're beheading people. How do we do it? I would love the guy in the skirt on the street wearing high heels. How do I love that guy? I want to walk as far as I possibly can around him. 
This is what Jesus says a neighbor is. He completely blows it out of the water. Jesus' response would have completely revolutionized and redefined the idea of what it meant to love your neighbor. Loving your neighbor goes beyond just those that we're related to, that we share connections with, that, that we have things in common with, and now it's our enemies. Now it's the people we don't like. Even further, it's the people that don't like us. This is the bar that Jesus sets for loving our neighbor. Interesting, right? So, Jesus' response, Jesus', Jesus is, his compilation of the entire law is that we would know who God is, okay? That he's one God, that we would love him with our heart, our soul, and our strength, and then that we would love people. We would love our neighbor, and he defines who that is. So there's three things. You notice that? There's three things that Jesus says specifically. That we would know God. What's that? Theology. Okay? That we would know God. We know who he is. Understand who he is. And then that we would, what? Love God. That we worship him with our heart, with our soul, with our mind, with our strength. And then thirdly, that we would love people. It's a progression. Now these three things, these three things, if you think about this, have, have really been historically the DNA of the church, haven't they? What Jesus did, I mean, do you think, do you think it's by any accident that, that Christianity has done so much to help the world as far as social justice goes? I mean, built orphanages and missions and, and done all kinds of aid. The, Chris, the Christian church, although it has done damage as well, has done probably more to help the world physically and tangibly than almost any other organization or religion, right? Why? Because the DNA was in Jesus' commands that we're to go and love people that we're to go and preach the gospel into the ends of the world. What Jesus is saying here is a three-strand, listen, a three-strand DNA of what the church is actually supposed to do, that we're to know him theologically, that we're to love him and worship him with our being, with our heart, with our mind, and that we're to go and to love people, not just people that we like, but people that hate us, people that we don't like. That's the DNA of the church. Unfortunately, though, if you guys look at the church, and I remember even being a kid and realizing this, unfortunately, rather than it being a three-strand DNA that, that defines what we do, it's actually become three camps, hasn't it? It's become three camps. We have the camp that's all about the first one, theology, right? They don't get out. They don't love the community. They're not doing missions. Um, they, they don't raise their hands in worship. They're scared to let any emotion out, but they're all about theology. And then we have other camps that are all about loving God, right? Worship, usually Pentecostal churches, they're all about the, the, the tangible, physical, emotional moments with God where we raise our hands and where we feel the Spirit of God, and, and that's an aspect for sure. And then we have another set of churches that are social justice churches. They're all about missions. They're all about getting out and doing things in the community. They're all about, about, about uh, sending missionaries to Africa and building orphanages and all of these physical, tangible needs being met. But usually they're lacking one of the other areas. Isn't that funny how that works? Jesus meant for this to be the DNA of the church, that all three of these things would be done, not, not specifically in different camps. I also want you to notice, and we're going to spend a little time on this and then we'll wrap it up. Um, I also want you to notice that there's a, a, an order to these things. You notice that? I don't think it's an accident. It's theology leads to worship, leads to social justice. Theology leads to worship, leads to social justice. Jesse, put that up for a little while because I, I know it's cheesy and I typed it on my computer, but at least you get a visual um, of what Jesus is saying here in his summation of the law of the commands. There's, there's an order here that's important, just like in DNA, right? If it's not in the right order, the body's not going to know what cells to create and how to, to grow and become the body that the DNA, DNA wants it to become. Not like I know anything about DNA, um, but I think that's how it works. Um, so we need to look at the order of this. Knowing God leads to loving God, leads to loving people. Now, why do we need to know God to love God? Why does knowing God lead to loving God? Why is that important? Now, listen, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Christianity, the, the, the beauty of the message that Jesus preached is that it does not start with us. You understand that? The gospel does not start with us. It starts with him. Salvation does not start with us loving God. It starts with God loving us. Does not start with us loving God because if it did, let me just say, we would fail, right? What does the Bible say? It says in John, 1 John 4.10, and this is love. This is the definition of love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be propitiation for our sins. That when we understand the love of God, 
Therefore, we love him. When we see what he's done for us, therefore, we love him. It says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's when we understand his majesty, his greatness, his patience, his love, that we are spurred on to worship him and to love him and to give of ourselves to him because we know who he is. There's a progression there that's important. Now, I'm not saying that in order to love God, you have to be a theological scholar, okay? But I am saying that how can you love someone you don't know? I think about marriage sometimes, right? We get married, you know, and we know our spouse, and they know us, but we got a lot of knowing to happen, right? I mean, just, I mean, we've been married three years, and my wife and I have learned a lot about each other. There was a lot of things that we didn't know about each other. And, and, and as we deal with those things, the person who's been married 30 years that loves their wife, I, I have a lot more respect for that love. Why? Because they know who they're loving, Right? We know, who God, we know who God is, and therefore we love God for who he is. And also, guys, if we don't know who God is and we just love him, then we're probably not loving the right God, <laughs> right? It's important that we understand who God is. So knowing God leads to loving God, and loving God leads to loving people. But listen, before we get to that, it's important that loving God precedes loving people. It's important that loving God precedes, precedes sorry, loving people, and this is why. First of all, when you look at the, the Ten Commandments, you guys know what those are? Um, I can't ever remember them. Uh, the Ten Commandments, uh, the first four are all about loving God. And the last six are all about loving people. You know, that's by accident. There's a progression here. In order to love people rightly, we need to first love God. We can never truly love people in a pure and holy and unself-serving way until we first are taken by the love of God. Why? The love, the pure love of God is modeled on the cross. Why? Because what happened on the cross was that God poured out himself, poured out his wrath on his son, not for anything that we could give back, but simply for us. That's the purest, most, the most white and perfect and, and amazing picture of love. When you love to receive something, it's not pure in his true love, is it? Let's be honest. I mean, even in our marriages, too. Let's look at that again. Sometimes in our marriages, we love our spouse, but a lot of times that love is hoping that we'll receive something in return, right? If I love my spouse and they'll love me more, then I'll be happier and we'll feel fulfilled. But love at its purest and at its truest form, as it was modeled on the cross, is to love when you don't get anything in return. To love when you, there's, no, there's nothing in it for you. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. He didn't love because he wanted something from us. Everything that we have was given by him. He had nothing to gain on the cross. He had everything to lose. That's the crazy thing about the gospel. He gave everything and gained nothing. But he did it out of pure and perfect love for us. Now, how could he do that? How could he do that? Because listen, because he was perfectly satisfied in the Father. He was perfectly satisfied in the Father. And because he was perfectly satisfied in the Father, therefore he could have perfect love. Because he wasn't trying to gain anything from us. He had everything he needed in the Father. And so too with us, guys. If we're going to love people rightly, we need, to find our, we need to find our satisfaction. We need to find all that we need in the Father so that we can love people, not for what they give us, but simply because we love them. Because we are satisfied in God. He has everything for any. So that means we're loving our kids. We're loving our spouses. We're loving our friends. Not because of what they do for us, because we don't need anything from them. We're satisfied in God. We're satisfied in his grace and his glory. And we love our kids, our spouse, our friends, our enemies, because, simply because we love them. Because that's what God did for us. Because that's how he modeled love for us. That's why, God, that's why loving God needs to precede loving people. Now what happens when we make loving people the focus and not loving God? What happens is, is what's happening right now. The world sees Christianity as simply a moral, uh, a, modifi- a behavior modification or moralism. They see Christianity as not God getting in and giving you a new heart and changing you from the inside out and and, and dying for you on a cross and giving everything for you in love and and turning you into a new creation for all eternity. They see it as as just a behavior modification. When people think about Christianity, they don't think about the gospel as we know it. They think about works. They think about loving people. Oh yeah, Christianity, that's about being a good person. Well, I do that. That's their idea of Christianity because we've mixed this up. We've mixed this up. People think of Christianity as simply loving people. Loving people is not the gospel, is it? It's the byproduct of the gospel. We can't love people unless we know who God is and love God, at least truly in that specific way. 
Listen to this, Matthew 7, 22. Jesus says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And Jesus says, I never knew you, right? Just because we're loving people doesn't mean that we're loving God. doesn't mean that we know God. It's important that we get this order right. We need to love people out of the abundance of our love for God. We need to love people out of a, a theology of knowing who God is. There's a reason for that order. And lastly, and, and probably most importantly to this text, hopefully you guys are still with me here, is, is knowing God and, lo- and loving God. The first two, they, they have to lead. They have to lead to loving people. If knowing God and loving God does not, li- lead, to li- does not lead to loving people, then you've missed the gospel. You've missed it. This is what Jesus, Jesus was doing something incredible here in this. He was putting two thoughts together that had never been put together before. There's no record in, in Jewish history of any rabbi, uh, any Pharisee, any scribe ever teaching about loving people and loving God in the same context. And Jesus puts the two together as if they're one. Loving God, loving people, they're the same thing. That was out of the box. That, that didn't happen. The Pharisees didn't do that. The scribes didn't do that. What Jesus is doing there is he's, he's creating an entirely new DNA for the church. That's why the church looks nothing like Judaism. Because Jesus was creating a new DNA for what the church would be. That we would love God. That we would love people. That it would be outside of just a self-serving religion where we get stronger and build ourselves up. That's why this church can't be about us. Because that's not the gospel. This church can't be about coming to Heritage to build up Heritage to make Heritage better. It has to be about going out, strengthening each other, but going out to love people, love our neighbors like the Samaritan, because that's the gospel. That's the point. Jesus puts them together as if they're one. He doesn't separate them out. Loving God, loving people, they're the same. Listen to this, 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, okay? By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for, for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. Guys, listen to this. This should really convict us, <laughs> okay? If anyone has the world's goods, if anyone has a lot of stuff, a lot of things, and sees his brother in need, who's his brother? It's not just the guy that goes to Heritage, right? It's not just the gal that's from Oregon or from Medford. Sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Listen, verse 19. I'm sorry, verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. What John is saying is this is how we know whether we are loving God. This is how we know whether we know God. Do we love people? Are we taking care of our neighbor? Are we? (laughs) That's how we can tell. That's how we know. There's no division here. Jesus says when you give water to the least of these, you're what? You're helping me. Because there's, there's no division. Worshiping God and loving people, this should be the same. We worship God through loving his people. Why? Because God loves all the world, doesn't he? He loves all the world and his desire is that none would perish. That's why we can go and do things like build schools and love on kids that are hurting and take in someone that needs it. Even if we don't get anything in return, even if they trample all over us, we can do that as Christians. That's why Christianity historically has been able to do the things that it can because we're not doing it for a reward. We're doing it because we've seen God's love and we're taken by his love and now we respond to that. We live out our life based off of what he did for us. Let's finish the story. So Mark 12 In 32, the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. So he agrees with him. Isn't that interesting? You have truly said that he is the one. I'm sorry, that he is one. And there there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So the scribe, after Jesus gives his summation of the law, the scribe agrees. This is weird, right? Usually they don't. Usually they're like, we're going to go find a way to kill you. That's usually the response of the Pharisees. You're done, man. We don't like your theology. We don't like your doctrine. You're messing up all that we do. So we're going to go find a way to execute you. This scribe has a different response, a different reaction to Jesus truly piercing him through with the truth. And his reaction is that he actually agrees. Now, look at verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely... 
He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. I love that. Third time's a charm, man. They're like, we're not asking this guy any more questions. He just shuts us down. (laughs) How did he shut the scribe down? First of all, the scribe, like I said earlier, the scribe, and this is in closing, don't worry. The scribe came to him trying to get, trying to reveal the fact that he was different than Moses, that he had a different set of theology than Moses. And if he could do that, then he could get the people against him. Then they would, it would eliminate his following, his fan base, um, his disciples. But what does Jesus do? He actually says, yeah, what Moses said, that's right. <laughs> that's what he does. He doesn't say, oh, Moses was wrong, this is right. No, he actually goes into the Old Testament. He says, the great Shema, what Moses said in Leviticus as well. Yeah, that's it right there, the law. And even goes further than that. He actually raises the bar. He says it's actually harder than what Moses said because we should be loving our neighbor as in our enemies. So he shuts the scribe down, first of all. The scribe was hoping to catch him in this. Jesus is too quick for that. He says, actually, no, get this. I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to get rid of the law. I actually came to fulfill the law, right? Jesus isn't against the law. Jesus doesn't doesn't have anything against the laws of Moses. In fact, Jesus is the law. Jesus is the word. Jesus was the inspiration of Moses' words in the book of Deuteronomy. Man, Deuteronomy. Good grief. I'm going to title this sermon Deuteronomy and Moses. Um, Probably used Old Spice. Just saying. Um, Now I'm never going to get back to my thought. Oh, um, what was I saying, guys? I need to go to bed. It's, It's like eight, five. Oh, this guy's trying to trap Jesus, and, and Jesus is too, he's too quick for that, right? What Jesus is doing here is he's raising the bar of the law, and this guy agrees with him. The scribe agrees with him, because the scribe knows the truth. And what is the truth? The truth is that Israel is not cutting it. Do you think Israel was cutting it? If they were cutting it, do you think Jesus would have gone into the temple and flipped over tables in anger? Do you think if they were cutting it, Jesus even would have come in the first place? Jesus is, his feet are on the soil of Jerusalem before the temple because Israel is not cutting it. Because Israel has never cut it. The three things that we talked about, right? Knowing who God is, loving God, loving people. Israel failed at those three more than any other laws. You know that? They failed at those. They constantly fell into idolatry, worshiping in polytheism, worshiping the gods of the Egyptians, worshiping the gods of the Canaanites, worshiping the gods of of all all these different and pagan people. They constantly did not love the Lord of Ahava love. That's why Moses said, put it on your foreheads so you don't forget, so you don't screw it up. And they did. And thousands of years later, after this was penned in Jesus' day, they're sitting at the foot of a temple that is completely apostate, a, a temple that's completely wrong, that's not working in the way it was intended to be, and the scribe knows it. Something's missing here. This, this is not the way it's supposed to be. We're not cutting it. The law is not being fulfilled through the priesthood. It's not happening. And standing in front of him is the answer. Jesus the fulfillment of the law. Jesus isn't raising the bar for the law so he can put some yoke on them, saying, look, you guys aren't cutting it, now I'm going to come in and wipe you out. He's saying, I know you guys aren't cutting it. I know Israel's failing, falling into idolatry, not having ahava love for God. That's why I came, to go to the cross to do it for you, for free, to give of myself so that you can be restored because he loves Israel, because he loves us. Because he knows we fail, right? We stand before the 613 commandments and say, God, how can I possibly live out my faith? How can I possibly live up to what it is to be a Christian? How can I possibly live up to, let alone the, the Old Testament, let alone the New Testament commands? What's this thing about fasting? What's this thing about prayer? What's this thing about reading the Bible? I mean, what in the world? How am I supposed to do all this stuff? Now, Jesus says something interesting to this guy, doesn't he? He says, you are close to the kingdom. It's like as if the door is right there. Now, who's standing right in front of him? Jesus. What is Jesus? He's the door, right? He's the only way to heaven. It's like, Jesus, you're so close. It says to the scribe, you're so close. You're right there. And why is he right there? Because he's acknowledged the reality that he can't do it. He's acknowledged the reality that he cannot get into the kingdom by himself, that Israel blew it, that he blew it, that none of them are living according to the law in the way that they can. And Jesus says, you're so close, but but he's not there. He's close, but he's not there. Why? Because he hasn't accepted Christ. Christ is the door to the kingdom, the only door to the kingdom, the only way into the kingdom, not the law. 
We will fail time and time again through the law. The scribe is standing in front of the way. And he's close because he knows he needs Jesus. But the question is, did he receive him? We don't know. It doesn't say. We don't know if he received him. We don't know. I hope so. I mean, I, I, I really hope so. Sometimes it's not enough to just know the truth, right? We need to believe. We need to believe by saying, Jesus, you're my king. You're my, you're my, you're my everything. I'm going to hold on to you with all that I have. I'm not just going to believe that you're the truth. I'm going to go through you to the kingdom. You are the door. I'm going to open it and walk through by your grace, right? That's what, that's what is in need here by this scribe. I don't know. I don't know if he got saved. I hope he did. We'll find out. But I, I think it's kind of cool that it's open-ended. Because if you think about it, it's kind of like our lives, right? We stand at our life at some point. We still have some to go. We're all still living. We don't know what's going to happen. And right now we have a decision. We know what the truth is. We know the truth is Jesus. Are we going to walk through the door? Or are we going to stand there and say, yep, Jesus is true, but I'm going to continue living the way I want? Are we going to make him, are we going to make him the point? Are we going to walk through him? Are we going to, I mean, we don't know. But our story still is unfolding. It's still ahead of us. And we can walk in it and through, hopefully, Jesus, because he's the point. Amen? Let's stand. Father, I, I'm so thankful that I, I can come up here and preach um, good news that I don't have to come up here and put burdens, uh, yokes on these guys about how they're not living according to the law and, and, and have to be convicted constantly with, with anxiety and stress about how I'm not living perfectly according to the law. But rather, God, I can come up there, I can come up here, God, and preach the beauty and the, and the good news of the gospel that, Jesus, you've given us perfect life, that you fulfilled the law for us, that you've taken the punishment we deserved on the cross for us, God. And every week I get to be reminded of that, that I get to teach, Lord. And I thank you so much that that is the good news. Lord, if we saved ourselves, we would not be saved at all. Thank you that you stepped into history, stepped into mankind, stepped out of, uh, of relationship with the Father for us to bring us into the kingdom to carry us into the kingdom, God, to raise us from our dead states, to give us life and a hope and a future. So Jesus, thank you for these guys, Lord. I thank you that, that, uh, that they know you, that they love you, and that they love people. And I pray, God, that we would live out that DNA, Lord, that that would be why we get up in the morning, to know you better, to love you greater, to love people, to love our neighbor. Jesus, help us to walk this out by your grace, by your power, by the empowering of the Holy Spirit, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. We'll uh, see you Sunday.